Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne The Custom House Introductory to the Scarlet Letter, Part 1. It is a little remarkable that, though disinclined to talk over much of myself and my affairs at the fireside and to my personal friends, an autobiographical impulse should twice in my life have taken possession of me in addressing the public. The first time was three or four years since, when I favored the reader, inexcusably and for no earthly reason, that either the indulgent reader or the intrusive author could imagine, with a description of my way of life in the deep quietude of an old man's. And now, because beyond my deserts, I was happy enough to find a listener or two on the former occasion, I again seize the public by the button and talk of my three years' experience in a custom house. The example of the famous P.P. Clerk of this parish was never more faithfully followed. The truth seems to be, however, that when he casts his leaves forth upon the wind, the author addresses, not the many who will fling aside his volume or never take it up, but the few who will understand him, better than most of his schoolmates or lifemates. Some authors, indeed, do far more than this, and indulge themselves in such confidential depths of revelation as could fittingly be addressed, only and exclusively, to the one heart and mind of perfect sympathy, as if the printed book, thrown at large on the wide world, were certain to find out the divided segment of the writer's own nature and complete his circle of existence by bringing him into communion with it. It is scarcely decorous, however, to speak all, even where we speak impersonally, But, as thoughts are frozen and utterance benumbed, unless the speaker stand in some true relation with his audience, it may be pardonable to imagine that a friend, a kind and apprehensive, though not the closest friend, is listening to our talk. And then, a native reserve being thawed by this general consciousness, we may prate of the circumstances that lie around us, and even of ourself, but still keep the inmost me behind its veil. To this extent, and within these limits, an author, methinks, may be autobiographical, without violating either the reader's rights or his own. It will be seen, likewise, that this customs house sketch has a certain propriety of a kind always recognized in literature as explaining how a large portion of the following pages came into my possession and as offering proofs of the authenticity of a narrative therein contained. This, in fact, a desire to put myself in my true position as editor, or very little more, of the most prolix among the tales that make up my volume, this, and no other, is my true reason for assuming a personal relation with the public. In accomplishing the main purpose, it has appeared allowable, by a few extra touches, to give a faint representation of a mode of life not heretofore described, together with some of the characters that move in it, among whom the author happened to make one. In my native town of Salem, at the head of what, half a century ago, in the days of old King Derby, was a bustling wharf, but which is now burdened with decayed wooden warehouses and exhibits few or no symptoms of commercial life, except perhaps a bark or brig halfway down its melancholy length, discharging hides, or nearer at hand, a Nova Scotia schooner pitching out her cargo of firewood, 
at the head, I say, of this dilapidated wharf, which the tide often overflows, and along which, at the base and in the rear of the row of buildings, the track of many languid years is seen in a border of unthrifty grass. Here, with a view from its front windows adown, this not very enlivening prospect, and thence across the harbor, stands a spacious edifice of brick. From the loftiest point of its roof, during precisely three and a half hours of each forenoon, floats or droops, in breeze or calm, the banner of the Republic. But within the thirteen stripes turned vertically instead of horizontally, and thus indicating that a civil and not a military post of Uncle Sam's government is here established. Its front is ornamented with a portico of half a dozen wooden pillars, supporting a balcony, beneath which a flight of wide granite steps descends towards the street. Over the entrance hovers an enormous specimen of the American eagle, with outspread wings, a shield before her breast, and if I recollect aright, a bunch of intermingled thunderbolts and barbed arrows in each claw. With the customary infirmity of temper that characterizes this unhappy fowl, she appears, by the fierceness of her beak and eye, and the general truculency of her attitude, to threaten mischief to the inoffensive community, and especially to warn all citizens, careful of their safety, against intruding on the premises which she overshadows with her wings. Nevertheless, vixenly as she looks, Many people are seeking at this very moment to shelter themselves under the wing of the federal eagle, imagining, I presume, that her bosom has all the softness and snugness of an eider-down pillow. But she has no great tenderness, even in her best of moods, and sooner or later, oftener soon than late, is apt to fling off her nestlings with a scratch of her claw, a dab of her beak, or a rankling wound from her barbed arrows. The pavement round about the above-described edifice, which we may as well name at once as the custom-house of the port, has grass enough growing in its chinks to show that it has not, of late days, been worn by any multitudinous resort of business. In some months of the year, however, there often chances a forenoon when affairs move onward with a livelier tread. Such occasions might remind the elderly citizen of that period before the last war with England, when Salem was a port by itself. Not scorned, as she is now, by her own merchants and shipowners, who permit her wharves to crumble to ruin, while their ventures go to swell, needlessly and imperceptibly, the mighty flood of commerce at New York or Boston. On some such morning, when three or four vessels happen to have arrived at once, usually from Africa or South America, or to be on the verge of their departure, thitherward. There is a sound of frequent feet passing briskly up and down the granite steps. Here, before his own wife has greeted him, you may greet the sea-flushed shipmaster, dressed in port, with his vessel papers under his arm, in a tarnished tin box. Here, too, comes his owner, cheerful or somber, gracious or in the sulks, accordingly, as his scheme of the now-accomplished voyage has been realized in merchandise that will readily be turned to gold, or has buried him under a bulk of incommodities, such as nobody will care to rid him of. Here, likewise, the germ of the wrinkle-browed, grisly-beard, careworn merchant, we have the smart young clerk, who gets the taste of traffic as a wolf-cub does of blood, and already sends adventures in his master's ships, when he had better be sailing mimic boats upon a mill-pond. Another figure in the scene is the outward-bound sailor in quest of a protection, or the recently arrived one, pale and feeble, seeking a passport to the hospital. Nor must we forget the captains of the rusty little schooners that bring firewood from the British provinces, a rough-looking set of tarpaulins without the alertness of the Yankee aspect, but contributing an item of no slight importance to our decaying trade. Cluster all these individuals together, as they sometimes were, with other miscellaneous ones to diversify the group, and for the time being, it made the Custom House a stirring scene. 
more frequently, however, on ascending the steps, you would discern, in the entry, if it were summertime, or in their appropriate rooms, if wintry or inclement weather, a row of venerable figures sitting in old-fashioned chairs, which were tipped on their hind legs back against the wall. Oftentimes they were asleep, but occasionally might be heard talking together, in voices between speech and a snore, and with that lack of energy that distinguishes the occupants of almshouses and all other human beings who depend for subsistence on charity, on monopolized labor, or anything else but their own independent exertions. These old gentlemen, seated like Matthew at the receipt of customs, but not very liable to be summoned thence, like him, for apostolic errands, were custom-house officers. Furthermore, on the left hand as you enter the front door is a certain room or office about fifteen feet square and of a lofty height, with two of its arched windows commanding a view of the aforesaid dilapidated wharf, and the third looking across a narrow lane and along a portion of Derby Street. All three give glimpses of the shops of grocers, block-makers, slop-sellers, and ship-chandlers, around the doors of which are generally to be seen, laughing and gossiping, clusters of old salts, and such other wharf-rats as haunt the wapping of a seaport. The room itself is cobwebbed and dingy with old paint. Its floor is strewn with grey sand, in a fashion that has elsewhere fallen into long disuse. And it is easy to conclude, from the general slovenliness of the place, that this is a sanctuary into which womankind, with her tools of magic, the broom and mop, has very infrequent access. In the way of furniture, there is a stove with a voluminous funnel, an old pine desk with a three-legged stool beside it, two or three wooden-bottomed chairs, exceedingly decrepit and infirm, and not to forget the library, on some shelves, a score or two of volumes of the Acts of Congress, and a bulky digest of the revenue laws. A tin pipe ascends through the ceiling and forms a medium of vocal communication with other parts of the edifice. And here, some six months ago, pacing from corner to corner, or lounging on the long-legged stool with his elbow on the desk, and his eyes wandering up and down the columns of the morning newspaper, you might have recognized, honored reader, the same individual who welcomed you into his cheery little study, where the sunshine glimmered so pleasantly through the willow branches on the western side of the old man's. But now, should you go thither to seek him, you would inquire in vain for the locofoco surveyor. The basalm of reform has swept him out of office, and a worthier successor wears his dignity and pockets his emoluments. This old town of Salem, my native place, though I have dwelt much away from it, both in boyhood and maturer years, possesses, or did possess, a hold on my affections, the force of which I have never realized during my seasons of actual residence here. Indeed, so far as its physical aspect is concerned, with its flat, unvaried surface, covered chiefly with wooden houses, few or none of which pretend to architectural beauty, its irregularity, which is neither picturesque nor quaint, but only tame, its long and lazy street, lounging wearisomely through the whole extent of the peninsula, with Gallows Hill and New Guinea at one end, and a view of the almshouse at the other, such being the features of my native town, it would be quite as reasonable to form a sentimental attachment to a disarranged checkerboard. And yet, though invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which, in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep and aged roots which my family has struck into the soil. It is now nearly two centuries and a quarter since the original Briton, the earliest immigrant of my name, made his appearance in the wild and forest-bordered settlement which has since become a city. And here his descendants have been born and died and have mingled their earthly substance with the soil, 
until no small portion of it must necessarily be akin to the mortal frame wherewith, for a little while, I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachment with which I speak is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Few of my countrymen can know what it is, nor, as frequent transplanation is perhaps better for the stock, need they consider it desirable to know. But the sentiment has likewise its moral quality. The figure of that first ancestor, invested by family tradition with a dim and dusky grandeur, was present to my boyish imagination as far back as I can remember. It still haunts me and induces a sort of home feeling with the past, which I scarcely claim in reference to the present phase of the town. I seem to have a stronger claim to a residence here, on account of this grave, bearded, sable-cloaked and steeple-crowned progenitor, who came so early with his Bible and his sword, and trode the unworn street with such a stately port, and made so large a figure, as a man of war and peace, a stronger claim than for myself, whose name is seldom heard, and my face hardly known. He was a soldier, legislator, judge. He was a ruler in the church. He had all the puritanic traits, both good and evil. He was likewise a bitter persecutor, as witness the Quakers, who have remembered him in their histories, and relate an incident of his hard severity towards a woman of their sect, which will last longer, it is to be feared, than any record of his better deeds, although these were many. His son, too, inherited the persecuting spirit, and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches, that their blood may fairly be said to have left a stain upon him. So deep a stain, indeed, that his old dry bones in the Charter Street burial ground must still retain it, if they have not crumbled utterly to dust. I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, or whether they are now groaning under the heavy consequences of them in another state of being. At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes, and pray that any curse incurred by them, as I have heard, and as the dreary and unprosperous condition of the race, for many along your back, would argue to exist, may be now and henceforth removed. Doubtless, however, either of these stern and black-browed Puritans would have thought it quite a sufficient retribution for his sins, that after so long a lapse of years, the old trunk of the family tree, with so much venerable moss upon it, should have borne, at its topmost bough, an idler like myself. No aim that I have ever cherished would they recognize as laudable, no success of mine, if my life, beyond its domestic scope, had ever been brightened by success, would they deem otherwise than worthless, if not positively disgraceful. What is he, murmurs one gray shadow of my forefathers to the other, a writer of story-books? What kind of a business in life, what mode of glorifying God, or being serviceable to mankind in his day and generation, may that be? Why, the degenerate fellow might as well have been a fiddler. Such are the compliments bandied between my great-grandsires and myself across the gulf of time. And yet, let them scorn me as they will, strong traits of their nature have intertwined themselves with mine. Planted deep in the town's earliest infancy and childhood by these two earnest and energetic men, the race has ever since subsisted here, always, too, in respectability. Never, so far as I have known, disgraced by a single unworthy member. But seldom, or never, on the other hand, after the first two generations, performing any memorable deed, or so much as putting forward a claim to public notice. Gradually, they have sunk almost out of sight, as old houses, here and there about the streets, get covered, halfway to the eaves, by the accumulation of new soil. From father to son, for above a hundred years, they followed the sea, a grey-headed shipmaster in each generation, retiring from the quarter-deck to the homestead, while a boy of fourteen took the hereditary place before the mast, confronting the salt spray and the gale which had blustered against his sire and grandsire. 
The boy, also in due time, passed from the forecastle to the cabin, spent a tempestuous manhood, and returned from his world wanderings to grow old and die, and mingle his dust with the natal earth. This long connection of a family with one spot, as its place of birth and burial, creates a kindred between the human being and the locality, quite independent of any charm in the scenery or moral circumstances that surround him. It is not love, but instinct. The new inhabitant, who came himself from a foreign land, or whose father or grandfather came, has little claim to be called a Salemite. He has no conception of the oyster-like tenacity with which an old settler, over whom his third century is creeping, clings to the spot where his successive generations have been embedded. It is no matter that the place is joyless for him, that he is weary of the old wooden houses, the mud and dust, the dead level of sight and sentiment, the chill east wind, and the chillest of social atmospheres. All these, and whatever faults besides he may see or imagine, are nothing to the purpose. The spell survives, and just as powerfully, as if the natal spot were an earthly paradise. So has it been in my case. I felt it almost as a destiny to make Salem my home, so that the mold of features and cast of character, which had all along been familiar here, ever, as one representative of the race lay down in his grave, another assuming, as it were, his sentry march along the main street, might still in my little day be seen and recognized in the old town. Nevertheless, this very sentiment is an evidence that the connection, which has become an unhealthy one, should at last be severed. Human nature will not flourish any more than a potato if it be planted and replanted for too long a series of generations in the same worn-out soil. My children have had other birthplaces, and so far as their fortunes may be within my control, shall strike their roots into unaccustomed earth. On emerging from the old man's, it was chiefly this strange, indolent, unjoyous attachment for my native town that brought me to fill a place in Uncle Sam's brick edifice when I might as well, or better, have gone somewhere else. My doom was on me. It was not the first time, nor the second, that I had gone away, as it seemed, permanently, but yet returned, like the bad halfpenny, or as if Salem were for me the inevitable center of the universe. So, one fine morning, I ascended the flight of granite steps, with the President's commission in my pocket, and was introduced to the Corps of Gentlemen, who were to aid me in my weighty responsibility as Chief Executive Officer of the Custom House. I doubt greatly, or rather, I do not doubt at all, whether any public functionary of the United States, either in the civil or military line, has ever had such a patriarchal body of veterans under his orders as myself. The whereabouts of the oldest inhabitant was at once settled when I looked at them. For upwards of twenty years before this epoch, the independent position of the collector had kept the Salem Custom House out of the whirlpool of political vicissitude, which makes the tenure of office generally so fragile. A soldier, New England's most distinguished soldier, he stood firmly on the pedestal of his gallant services, and himself, secure in the wise liberality of the successive administrations through which he had held office, he had been the safety of his subordinates in many an hour of danger and heartquake. General Miller was radically conservative, a man over whose kindly nature habit had no slight influence, attaching himself strongly to familiar faces and with difficulty moved to change, even when change might have brought unquestionable improvement. Thus, on taking charge of my department, I found few but aged men, they were ancient sea captains, for the most part, who, after being tossed on every sea and standing up sturdily against life's tempestuous blasts, had finally drifted into this quiet nook, where, with little to disturb them except the periodical terrors of a presidential election, they one and all acquired a new lease of existence, though by no means less liable than their fellow men to age and infirmity, 
they had evidently some talisman or other that kept death at bay. Two or three of their number, as I was assured, being gouty and rheumatic, or perhaps bedridden, never dreamed of making their appearance at the custom house during a large part of the year, but after a torpid winter would creep out into the warm sunshine of May or June, go lazily about what they term duty, and at their own leisure and convenience betake themselves to bed again. I must plead guilty to the charge of abbreviating the official breath of more than one of these venerable servants of the Republic. They were allowed, on my representation, to rest from their arduous labors, and soon afterwards, as if their sole principle of life had been zeal for their country's service, as I verily believe it was, withdrew to a better world. It is a pious consolation to me that, through my interference, a sufficient space was allowed them for repentance of the evil and corrupt practices into which, as a matter of course, every custom-house officer must be supposed to fall. Neither the front nor the back entrance of the custom-house opens on the road to paradise. The greater part of my officers were Whigs. It was well for their venerable brotherhood that the new surveyor was not a politician, and though a faithful Democrat in principle, neither received nor held his office with any reference to political services. Had it been otherwise, had an active politician been put into this influential post to assume the easy task of making head against a Whig collector whose infirmities withheld him from the personal administration of his office, hardly a man of the old corps would have drawn the breath of official life within a month after the exterminating angel had come up the custom-house steps. According to the received code in such matters, it would have been nothing short of duty, in a politician, to bring every one of those white heads under the axe of the guillotine. It was plain enough to discern that the old fellows dreaded some such discourtesy at my hands. It pained and at the same time amused me to behold the terrors that attended my advent, to see a furrowed cheek, weather-beaten by half a century of storm, turn ashy pale at the glance of so harmless an individual as myself. To detect, as one or another addressed me, the tremor of a voice which in long past days had been wont to bellow through a speaking trumpet, hoarsely enough to frighten Boreas himself to silence. They knew, these excellent old persons, that by all established rule, and as regarded some of them, weighed by their own lack of efficiency for business, they ought to have given place to younger men, more orthodox in politics, and altogether fitter than themselves to serve our common uncle. I knew it too, but could never quite find in my heart to act upon the knowledge. Much, and deservedly to my own discredit, therefore, and considerably to the detriment of my official conscience, they continued, during my incumbency, to creep about the wharves and loiter up and down the custom-house steps. They spent a good deal of time, also, asleep in their custom corners, with their chairs tilted back against the wall, awaking, however, once or twice in a forenoon, to bore one another with the several thousandth repetition of old sea-stories and moldy jokes that had grown to be passwords and countersigns among them. The discovery was soon made, I imagine, that the new surveyor had no great harm in him, so with lightsome hearts and the happy consciousness of being usefully employed, in their own behalf at least, if not for our beloved country, these good old gentlemen went through the various formalities of office. Under their spectacles did they peep into the holds of vessels. Mighty was their fuss about little matters, and marvelous sometimes, the obtuseness that allowed greater ones to slip between their fingers. Whenever such a mischance occurred, when a wagon-load of valuable merchandise had been smuggled ashore, at noonday, perhaps, and directly beneath their unsuspicious noses, a eulogium on their praiseworthy caution, after the mischief had happened, a grateful recognition of the promptitude of their zeal, the moment that there was no longer any remedy. Unless people are more than commonly disagreeable, it is my foolish habit to contract a kindness for them. The better part of my companion's character, if it have a better part, 
is that which usually comes uppermost in my regard and forms the type whereby I recognize the man. As most of these old custom-house officers had good traits, and as my position in reference to them, being paternal and protective, was favorable to the growth of friendly sentiments, I soon grew to like them all. It was pleasant, in the summer forenoons, when the fervent heat that almost liquefied the rest of the human family merely communicated a genial warmth to their half-torpid systems. It was pleasant to hear them chatting in the back entry, a row of them all tipped against the wall as usual, while the frozen witticisms of past generations were thought out and came bubbling with laughter from their lips. Externally, the jollity of aged men has much in common with the mirth of children. The intellect, any more than a deep sense of humor, has little to do with the matter. It is, with both a gleam that plays upon the surface and imparts a sunny and cherry aspect alike to the green branch and gray moldering trunk. In one case, however, it is real sunshine. In the other, it more resembles the phosphorescent glow of decaying wood. It would be sad injustice, the reader must understand, to represent all my excellent old friends as in their dotage. In the first place, my co-adjutors were not invariably old. There were men among them in their strength and prime of marked ability and energy, and altogether superior to the sluggish and dependent mode of life on which their evil stars had cast them. Then, moreover, the white locks of age were sometimes found to be the thatch of an intellectual tenement in good repair. But, as respects the majority of my corps veterans, there will be no wrong done if I characterize them generally as a set of wearisome old souls who had gathered nothing worth preservation from their varied experience of life. They seemed to have flung away all the golden grain of practical wisdom which they had enjoyed so many opportunities of harvesting, and most carefully to have stored their memories with the husks. They spoke with far more interest and unction of their morning's breakfast, or yesterday's, today's, or tomorrow's dinner, than of the shipwreck of forty or fifty years ago, and all the world's wonders which they had witnessed with their youthful eyes. The father of the custom house, the patriarch, not only of this little squad of officials, but, I am bold to say, of the respectable body of tide-waiters all over the United States, was a certain permanent inspector. He might truly be termed a legitimate son of the revenue system, dyed in the wool, or rather, born in the purple, since his sire, a revolutionary colonel, and formerly collector of the port, had created an office for him and appointed him to fill it at a period of the early ages, which few living men can now remember. This inspector, when I first knew him, was a man of fourscore years, or thereabouts, and certainly one of the most wonderful specimens of wintergreen that you would be likely to discover in a lifetime's search. With his florid cheek, his compact figure smartly arrayed in a bright-buttoned blue coat, his brisk and vigorous step, and his hale and hearty aspect, altogether he seemed, not young indeed, but a kind of new contrivance of mother nature in the shape of man, whom age and infirmity had no business to touch. His voice and laugh, which perpetually re-echoed through the custom-house, had nothing of the tremulous quaver and cackle of an old man's utterance. They came strutting out of his lungs, like the crow of a cock or the blast of a clarion. Looking at him merely as an animal, and there was very little else to look at, he was a most satisfactory object, from the thorough healthfulness and wholesomeness of his system and his capacity, at that extreme age, to enjoy all, or nearly all, the delights which he had ever aimed at or conceived of. The careless security of his life in the custom house, on a regular income, and with but slight and infrequent apprehensions of removal, had no doubt contributed to make time pass lightly over him. The original and more potent causes, however, lay in the rare perfection of his animal nature, the moderate proportion of intellect, and the very trifling admixture of moral and spiritual ingredients. These latter qualities, indeed, being in barely enough measure to keep the old gentleman from walking on all fours. 
he possessed no power of thought, no depth of feeling, no troublesome sensibilities, nothing, in short, but a few commonplace instincts, which, aided by the cheerful temper that grew inevitably out of his physical well-being, did duty very respectably and to general acceptance in lieu of a heart. He had been the husband of three wives, all long since dead, the father of twenty children, most of whom, at every age of childhood or maturity, had likewise returned to dust. Here, one would suppose, might have been sorrow enough to imbue the sunniest disposition through and through with a sable tinge. Not so with our old inspector. One brief sigh sufficed to carry off the entire burden of these dismal reminiscences. The next moment he was as ready for sport as any unbreached infant, far readier than the collector's junior clerk, who at nineteen years was much the elder and graver man of the two. I used to watch and study this patriarchal personage with, I think, livelier curiosity than any other form of humanity there presented to my notice. He was, in truth, a rare phenomenon, so perfect in one point of view, so shallow, so delusive, so impalpable, such an absolute non-entity in every other. My conclusion was that he had no soul, no heart, no mind. Nothing, as I have already said, but instincts. And yet, withal, so cunningly had the few materials of his character been put together that there was no painful perception of deficiency, but, on my part, an entire contentment with what I found in him. It might be difficult, and it was so, to conceive how he should exist hereafter, so earthly and sensuous did he seem. But surely his existence here, admitting that it was to terminate with his last breath, had not been unkindly given, with no higher moral responsibilities than the beasts of the field, but with a larger scope of enjoyment than theirs, and with all their blessed immunity from the dreariness and duskiness of age. One point in which he had vastly the advantage over his four-footed brethren was his ability to recollect the good dinners which it had made no small portion of the happiness of his life to eat. His gourmandism was a highly agreeable trait, and to hear him talk of roast meat was as appetizing as a pickle or an oyster. As he possessed no higher attribute, and neither sacrificed nor vitiated any spiritual endowment by devoting all his energies and ingenuities to subserve the delight and profit of his maw, it always pleased and satisfied me to hear him talk on fish, poultry, and butcher's meat, and the most eligible methods of preparing them for the table. His reminiscences of good cheer, however, ancient the date of the actual banquet, seemed to bring the savor of pig or turkey under one's very nostrils. There were flavors on his palate that had lingered there not less than sixty or seventy years, and were still apparently as fresh as that of the mutton chop which he had just devoured for his breakfast. I have heard him smack his lips over dinners, every guest at which, except himself, had long been food for worms. It was marvelous to observe how the ghosts of bygone meals were continually rising up before him, not in anger or retribution, but as if grateful for his former appreciation and seeking to resuscitate an endless series of enjoyment, at once shadowy and sensual. A tender loin of beef, a hind quarter of veal, a spare rib of pork, a particular chicken or remarkably praiseworthy turkey, which had perhaps adorned his board in the days of the elder Adams, would be remembered, while all the subsequent experience of our race and all the events that had brightened or darkened his individual career had gone over him with as little permanent effect as the passing breeze. The chief tragic event of the old man's life, so far as I could judge, was his mishap with a certain goose which lived and died some twenty or forty years ago, a goose of most promising figure, but which at table proved so inveterately tough that the carving knife would make no impression on its carcass, and it could only be divided with an axe and handsaw. But it is time to quit this sketch, on which, however, I should be glad to dwell at considerably more length, because, of all men whom I have ever known, this individual was fittest to be a custom-house officer. 
most persons, owing to causes which I may not have space to hint at, suffer moral detriment from this peculiar mode of life. The old inspector was incapable of it, and, were he to continue in office to the end of time, would be just as good as he was then, and sit down to dinner with just as good an appetite. There is one likeness, without which my gallery of custom-house portraits would be strangely incomplete, but which my comparatively few opportunities for observation enable me to sketch only in the merest outline. It is that of the collector, our gallant old general, who, after his brilliant military service, subsequently to which he had ruled over a wild western territory, had come hither, twenty years before, to spend the decline of his varied and honorable life. The brave soldier had already numbered nearly or quite his threescore years and ten, and was pursuing the remainder of his earthly march, burdened with infirmities, which even the martial music of his own spirit-stirring recollections could do little towards lightening. The step was palsied now that had been foremost in the charge. It was only with the assistance of a servant, and by leaning his hand heavily on the iron balustrade, that he could slowly and painfully ascend the custom-house steps, and with a toilsome progress across the floor, attain his customary chair besides the fireplace. There he used to sit, gazing with a somewhat dim serenity of aspect at the figures that came and went, amid the rustle of papers, the administering of oaths, the discussion of business, and the casual talk of the office. All which sounds and circumstances seemed but indistinctly to impress his senses, and hardly to make their way into his inner sphere of contemplation. His countenance, in this repose, was mild and kindly. If his notice was sought, an expression of courtesy and interest gleamed out upon his features, proving that there was light within him, and that it was only the outward medium of the intellectual lamp that obstructed the rays in their passage. The closer you penetrated to the substance of his mind, the sounder it appeared. When no longer called upon to speak or listen, either of which operations cost him an evident effort, his face would briefly subside into its former not uncheerful quietude. It was not painful to behold this look, for though dim, it had not the imbecility of decaying age. The framework of his nature, originally strong and massive, was not yet crumbled into ruin. To observe and define his character, however, under such disadvantages, was as difficult a task as to trace out and build up anew, in imagination, an old fortress, like Ticonderoga, from a view of its grey and broken ruins. Here and there, perchance, the walls may remain almost complete, but elsewhere may be only a shapeless mound, cumbrous with its very strength and overgrown, though long years of peace and neglect, with grass and alien weeds. Nevertheless, looking at the old warrior with affection, for, slight as was the communication between us, my feeling towards him, like that of all bipeds and quadrupeds who knew him, might not improperly be termed so, I could discern the main points of his portrait. It was marked with the noble and heroic qualities, which showed it to be not by a mere accident, but of good right, that he had won a distinguished name. His spirit could never, I conceive, have been characterized by an uneasy activity. It must, at any period of his life, have required an impulse to set him in motion. But once stirred up with obstacles to overcome and an adequate object to be attained, it was not in the man to give out or fail. The heat that had formerly pervaded his nature, and which was not yet extinct, was never of the kind that flashes and flickers in a blaze, but rather a deep, red glow, as of iron in a furnace. Weight, solidity, firmness. This was the expression of his repose, even in such decay as had crept untimely over him, at the period of which I speak. But I could imagine, even then, that under some excitement, which should go deeply into his consciousness, roused by a trumpet peal, loud enough to awaken all his energies that were not dead, but only slumbering, he was yet capable of flinging off his infirmities like a sick man's gown, dropping the staff of age to seize a battle-sword, and starting up once more a warrior. And in so intense a moment his demeanor would have still been calm. 
Such an exhibition, however, was but to be pictured in fancy, not to be anticipated nor desired. What I saw in him, as evidently as the indestructible ramparts of old Ticonderoga, already cited as the most appropriate simile, were the features of stubborn and ponderous endurance, which might as well have amounted to obstinacy in his earlier days, of integrity that, like most of his other endowments, lay in a somewhat heavy mass, and was just as unmalleable and unmanageable as a ton of iron ore, and of benevolence, which, fiercely as he led the bayonets on at Chippewa or Fort Erie, I take to be of quite as genuine a stamp as what actuates any or all the polemical philanthropists of the age. He had slain men with his own hand, for aught I know. Certainly they had fallen, like blades of grass, at the sweep of the scythe, before the charge to which his spirit imparted its triumphant energy. But, be that as it might, there was never in his heart so much cruelty as would have brushed the down off a butterfly's wing. I have not known the man to whose innate kindliness I would more confidently make an appeal. Many characteristics, and those too which contribute not the least forcibly to impart resemblance in a sketch, must have vanished or been obscured before I met the general. All merely graceful attributes are usually the most evanescent, nor does nature adorn the human ruin with blossoms of new beauty that have their roots and proper nutriment only in the chinks and crevices of decay as she sows wallflowers over the ruined fortress of Ticonderoga. Still, even in respect of grace and beauty, there were points well worth noting. A ray of humor now and then would make its way through the veil of dim obstruction and glimmer pleasantly upon our faces. A trait of native elegance seldom seen in the masculine character after childhood or early youth, was shown in the general's fondness for the sight and fragrance of flowers. An old soldier might be supposed to prize only the bloody laurel on his brow, but here was one who seemed to have a young girl's appreciation of the floral tribe. There, beside the fireplace, the brave old general used to sit, while the surveyor, though seldom when it could be avoided taking upon himself the difficult task of engaging him in conversation, was fond of standing at a distance and watching his quiet and almost salumbrious countenance. He seemed away from us, although we saw him but a few yards off, remote though we passed close beside his chair, unattainable though we might have stretched forth our hands and touched his own. It might be that he lived a more real life within his thoughts than amid the unappropriate environment of the collector's office. The evolutions of the parade, the tumult of the battle, the flourish of old heroic music, heard thirty years before, such scenes and sounds, perhaps, were all alive before his intellectual sense. Meanwhile, the merchants and shipmasters, the spruce clerks and uncouth sailors, entered and departed, the bustle of this commercial and custom-house life kept up its little murmur round about him, and neither with the men nor their affairs did the general appear to sustain the most distant relation. He was as much out of place as an old sword, now rusty but which had flashed once in the battle's front and showed still a bright gleam among its blade, would have been among the inkstands, paper folders, and mahogany rulers on the deputy collector's desk. There was one thing that much aided me in renewing and recreating the stalwart soldier of the Niagara frontier, the man of true and simple energy. It was the recollection of those memorable words of his, I'll try, sir, spoken on the very verge of a desperate and heroic enterprise, and breathing the soul and spirit of New England hardihood, comprehending all perils and encountering all. If in our country valor were rewarded by heraldic honor, this phrase, which it seems so easy to speak, but which only he, with such a task of danger and glory before him, has ever spoken, would be the best and fittest of all mottoes for the general's shield of arms. It contributes greatly towards a man's moral and intellectual health to be brought into habits of companionship with individuals unlike himself, who care little for his pursuits, and whose sphere and abilities he must go out of himself to appreciate. The accidents of my life have often afforded me this advantage, but never with more fullness and variety 
than during my continuance in office. There was one man, especially, the observation of whose character gave me a new idea of talent. His gifts were emphatically those of a man of business, prompt, acute, clear-minded, with an eye that saw through all perplexities, and a faculty of arrangement that made them vanish, as by the waving of an enchanter's wand. Bred up from boyhood in the custom house, it was his proper field of activity, and the many intricacies of business, so harassing to the interloper, presented themselves before him with the regularity of a perfectly comprehended system. In my contemplation, he stood as the ideal of his class. He was, indeed, the custom house in himself, or at all events, the main spring that kept its variously revolving wheels in motion. For in an institution like this, where its officers are appointed to subserve their own profit and convenience, and seldom with a leading reference to their fitness for the duty to be performed, they must perforce seek elsewhere the dexterity which is not in them. Thus, by an inevitable necessity, as a magnet attracts steel filings, so did our man of business draw to himself the difficulties which everybody met with. With an easy condescension and kind forbearance towards our stupidity, which, to his order of mind, must have seemed little short of crime, would he forthwith, by the merest touch of his finger, make the incomprehensible as clear as daylight. The merchants valued him not less than we, his esoteric friends. His integrity was perfect. It was a law of nature with him, rather than a choice or a principle. Nor can it be otherwise than the main condition of an intellect so remarkably clear and accurate as his— to be honest and regular in the administration of affairs. A stain on his conscience as to anything that came within the range of his vocation would trouble such a man very much in the same way, though to a far greater degree, than an error in the balance of an account or an inkblot on the fair page of a book of record. Here in a word, and it is a rare instance in my life, I had met with a person thoroughly adapted to the situation which he held. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.